Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, The Big D Diastema, with Dr. David Galler. You'll earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you will receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar you will have the opportunity to ask text questions which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions as our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor's site where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. David Galler. Dr. David Galler is a general dentist that practices in downtown Manhattan and is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine. He is a top 1% elite provider of Invisalign and part of the Invisalign faculty. He has presented in the past at Invisalign summits, forums, Greater New York Dental Meetings, Chicago Midwinter Meetings, CDA, JDQ, and other dental conferences. He's also the current president of the American Academy of Cosmetic Orthodontics, the first GP to hold that title. So without further delay, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Galler. Dr. Galler, you now have the floor. Okay. Good morning, good afternoon, Invisalign Nation. This is David Galler coming to you live from New York and at the comfort of my own home, which is amazing to present from here. Today's course is called the Big D, D standing for diastema and not divorce, as many people thought. Uh, although when my wife saw this program on the docket, she thought, since I've been traveling for the last six weeks, maybe it means divorce because I'm just not home anymore. But luckily, the Big D stands for diastema, and I'm here at home presenting, so this is a great way to go. And nice to see a good crowd on the line here. Special hello to all my American Academy of Cosmetic Orthodontic friends out there. Uh, it's great to see so many of the members on the line. And uh, looking forward to continue to grow with you uh, in many facets of Invisalign knowledge. We'll uh, give a shout-out to those people afterwards. Uh, and as well, talk a little bit about the American Academy of Cosmetic Orthodontics, if you didn't know about it, later on. Anyway, I practice in downtown Manhattan. Um, I am a general dentist and do quite a bit of Invisalign and get a chance to see a lot of different things. And today we're going to talk about diastomas and all their features. Diastomas can be very rewarding with Invisalign, but they can also be very frustrating at certain points. If anybody would like to get in contact with me afterwards, you can always email me at dgaller at aacortho.com. Statement views and opinions expressed in this program are related to my own views, and Invisalign does not endorse any such things. We're going to focus today on three parts of the diastema. A comprehensive discussion of diastema requires three parts. The first part is we have to understand how to diagnose diastema. When a patient comes in and looks at you and you look at them and you see a big space between number eight and nine, you have to understand why is that space there. That's probably the most important thing. If you can understand why the space is there, that will guide you a lot in how to close that space. Then the next thing we're going to look at is how to close the space with the Invisalign. There are a few modalities of movement. We can move things mesially. We can use things lingually. We can try and um, close the whole arch in. How does the actual Invisalign program work to actually move teeth with Invisalign? We're going to talk just about Invisalign. I'm not going to be talking about any other uh, orthodontic appliances to close spaces today. Our focus is going to be on how to close space with Invisalign, and we'll talk about the different ways to do that. And then we're going to talk about how to keep the space closed. 
so many dentists in the country struggle with how to keep the space closed after you've done the Invisalign. You've closed the space with the Invisalign, and now all of a sudden the space keeps opening up, or uh, you, just, you just can't seem to keep that space closed. And we're going to spend a fair amount of time on how to retain a diastema closure, especially in adults where it's really, really tricky, and there's nothing more frustrating in a person's practice that you spend six, seven months closing a diastema, and then, lo and behold, that diastema just keeps popping up. And a common thing that sometimes you'll hear from patients even six months, a year out, is like, hey, I go to sleep, I put on my retainer, I wake up in the morning, the space is closed. I take off my retainer, I go to work, and I come home at night and the space is open. And it's extremely frustrating. So we're going to focus a lot on how to close and keep the diastema closed. But for right now, let's focus on how to diagnose a diastema. So a patient walks in, they have a little bit of space between 8 and 9, and you want to close it. But before you're prepared to just take records and submit it to Invisalign, you've got to have a little bit of understanding of why this person has a diastema to begin with. Invisalign was built for diastemas. Invisalign is one of the greatest tools for diastemas and has prevented us from doing over-bulking crowns and laminates and those weird bondings that you see every now and then where someone was just trying to close the space. Spent so much part of dental school learning how to close a space with composite for diastemas, and now in 2013, it's so apparent to us that that is usually, unless there's a tooth size discrepancy, the wrong way to close a diastema. The 2013 correct way to close most diastemas is with orthodontics. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about restorative closes, but it's mostly orthodontics. And now with Invisalign, that brings that technology to every GP office in the country. So how to close a, how to diagnose a diastema. <clears throat> so basically, when you're looking at diastema, you want to kind of think of the following six things. There's only about six reasons why a person can have a diastema to begin with. The first one is the class two malocclusion. Basically, their upper jaw is bigger than their lower jaw. The upper teeth are kind of flaring and stretched out. They don't really have a relationship to the lower teeth, and they wind up picking up some extra space as the upper jaw is much larger. In a class three malocclusion, sometimes you see that the lower jaw is bigger than the upper jaw, and those upper teeth kind of think of it as trying to stretch themselves out so that they could touch the teeth. Mother Nature wants the upper and lower teeth to touch, so in a class three diastema malocclusion, you're usually seeing those two upper teeth, eight and nine, they're kind of trying to stretch themselves out so that they can touch eight, the lower teeth, and you'll get a little bit of a diastema there. Then you have the good old tongue thrust. That makes up a good majority of some of the extreme diastemas that we see in the country. And basically that means that the tongue pushes against the teeth during the day and flares them out. Then, of course, is the tooth size discrepancy. I'm not going to spend too much time today on the golden rule and golden proportions of dentistry, but hopefully everybody knows that, that there's a certain 1.6 to 1 ratio that we want to see on the 7, 8, 9, and 10 teeth. And if one of those is contoured off, you'll get a little bit of a tooth size discrepancy. Now, a lot of people don't see it, but in our adult population, we get a lot of posterior occlusal wear. And what happens with posterior occlusal wear is that if a good grinder or a person who's grinding or, or, or biting on their back teeth a lot, they can cause a loss in vertical dimension of their teeth or their occlusion. In the loss of vertical dimension of the occlusion, you start to see that the bottom teeth hit against the anterior teeth, and they cause them to flare. And then number six is all the other little things that might come up, whether it's eruption or some parafunctional habit that can cause it. So let's take a look at some examples. So this is your classic class two malocclusion. Everyone can see right over here that the molars are in a class two position here, and basically the upper jaw is just a lot bigger 
down their lower jaw, and that would lead sometimes to a diastomal. Obviously, this would be a class 2 div 1 person with kind of that large overjet, and sometimes because those upper teeth are just kind of blown out, there's a little bit of space in between the two central incisors i.e., this person has diastomy. This is a real ideal case in an adult. Um, obviously, you can go back in and correct the molar occlusion and sequentially distalize all those teeth. But sometimes, very simply, for a patient who's just looking to close the space between 8 and 9 and really not interested in 36 months of Invisalign or orthodontic treatment, sometimes we'll just put Invisalign on those two front on the, on the upper arch and just close that space. And that really works very well because the overjet is quite big there, which is kind of close the space and no harm, no foul. Can't get more uninvasive than that. So class 2 malocclusion, where the chief complaint is simply just close the space a little bit rather than it being 1995 and you're putting bonding on the side of this tooth and bonding on the side of that tooth, that would really be considered today kind of the incorrect treatment. The correct treatment is to put this patient into Invisalign. Even if you want to do just an upper only, keep it super simple and just close that space right up. As opposed to a class 2 malocclusion diastema, a class 3 malocclusion diastema is really not a very good use of Invisalign space closure. Obviously, everyone can see the molar relationship right over here with my arrow. Here's my arrow. Kind of got the mesial buccal cusp of number 14 is occluding in a distal position to the central groove of number 30, i.e., you have a class 3 molar relationship here. And in a class 3 molar relationship, sometimes you're kind of seeing those upper teeth are kind of stretching to try and stay in contact or in play with the lower teeth. And as such, in this case, this person developed a little bit of diastomy here. Now, they come in not under, you know, this is already a 35-year-old adult, well-functioning. Somehow he's, he's biting, chewing. He's gotten kind of used to his bite. But this is somebody saying, hey, come in and let me fix, you know, close the space between my teeth. But obviously, we have to understand that using orthodontics to close this space by retracting or pulling them in, that would be the incorrect treatment to do. Uh, even though that space is easily closable with Invisalign in terms of one and a half millimeters, pulling those teeth in would make this class three malocclusion worse, and you would actually get rid of whatever limited anterior function they have now, even though it's correct, they're kind of comfortable with it. Uh, this real person really needs comprehensive orthodontics or they need real surgery to kind of correct these two arches between them. Then we have the good old tongue thrust. Uh, the tongue thrust is the abnormal habit of placing the tongue between the teeth before and during the act of swallowing. Now, swallowing, this is stuff I found on the Internet, but swallowing occurs 24 hours a day and about 200 times a day. Uh, and, and when it does that, it gives you about one to six pounds of pressure pushing those teeth in. And this is your prototypical classic tongue thrust picture. Here you have a patient who's kind of biting all the way down. You can see there's lots of flare of the upper tongue thrust all the way across, and these teeth are just kind of shooting right out and pushing out towards us. And it's funny, in the people, this almost diagnoses itself, because when I take the photo of their teeth uh, and take the position of their facial profile here, uh, and I'm sorry, their full face photo, he doesn't even realize that he's giving me the whole diagnosis right here because if you look right in between his teeth, you can kind of see that the tongue is just shooting right out in between his teeth, and this is the whole story in a nutshell. Basically, his tongue is just thrusting all the way forward, and over years and years and years, that causes all the anterior teeth to have a little bit of flare. These are very nice Invisalign cases, and tongue thrust makes for very, very good treatment. The one thing we will talk about tongue thrust, obviously, 
is that retention is something that we're going to talk about and focus on quite a bit. Tongue thrusting is hard to fix as an adult. There are some methodologies in terms of speech therapy and in terms of tongue thrusting appliances, but most literature suggests that in an adult, those are hard to have long-term success with. Uh, teenager, totally on it. Adult, a little bit hard. So what we tell some of our tongue thrust patients is, you know, there's no reason you don't deserve a nice smile also, uh, and there's no other real restorative way to fix this. I think it would be quite insane to put uh, laminates or, you know, crowns on all these teeth. That would, that would make for really, really a lot of bulky dentistry, uh, and I think that that would be a poor way to go. Tongue thrusters are just going to have to be able to wear retainers at night for the rest of their life, and that's something that we kind of stress at the beginning. Tongue will thrust during the day. The Vera retainers will hold everything at night. Then we have posterior bite collapses, and a lot of people don't know about this one. So when we deal with adults, sometimes as they age, the occlusal surfaces of the posterior teeth wear more, and they kind of break down. And what happens is you get a loss of vertical dimension. And here I kind of highlighted it. That either causes the maxillary teeth to flare and thereby get a little bit of asthma or causes the mandibular teeth to crowd. So let's take a look at an example of something like this. So here you have a classic posterior bite collapse. This is a 48-year-old woman, and the, she's getting, she's kind of grinding and, and pounding on her molars in the back here, and that is causing a loss of vertical dimension. That loss of vertical dimension happens very, very slowly, but she is, for lack of a better term, over-closing, and those lower teeth are starting to flare out. There's just this, this not enough room between the gingiva here and the gingiva there to fit all these teeth in. And what's happening is those lower teeth are kind of starting to flare out a little bit, and obviously that pushes on the back of number eight and nine, and number eight and nine start to flare out as well. And then to the observer, it looks like they have a diastema. But the cause of the diastema is a loss of vertical dimension. And this is mostly in those patients that we'll see that say, hey, I've never had a space between my teeth my whole life. Now I'm 38 years old, and all of a sudden I see this little gap between my teeth, and I don't like it. Whenever I hear that kind of background or story, I always know that that's a loss of vertical dimension that happens, and it's fairly common. Now, to correct this, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to, obviously, we could straighten this out with IPR, but at the end of the day, we're probably going to need to increase the vertical dimension in order to get all the teeth to fit, unless you're going to start extracting teeth, which is not a big, uh, not a big thing to do in a case where there's not such intense crowding. We're going to need to kind of put some onlays or crowns on their posterior teeth, give them back that vertical height to get these teeth to close. If you don't do that, then this is your prototypical case where you get to the end and you patient bites down and they're just hammering on the two central incisors. And, you know, every time they bite down, you can actually put your finger on that tooth and you feel that vibration coming through the tooth and they're just biting. And basically you're trying to squeeze stuff into a vertical dimension that basically is impossible. Um, and then you have to get your face with just uh, basically trying to equilibrate at that point, which is, which is not so great, or trying to obviously then go back and correct the vertical dimension. So right away in this case, whenever you see that posterior occlusal wear, you see that prototypical flaring forward of the lower anterior teeth against the cingulums of the maxillary teeth. That's your, that's, your, that's your sure sign. This is posterior occlusal wear. The reason why you have your diastema is because you have a loss of vertical dimension. And part of our treatment, although Invisalign can fix this, part of our treatment is going to have to include some increase of vertical dimension. I need to put some on laser crowns or something on those posterior teeth to give you back the height that we used to have so that everything can function normally in the front. All right? So that is basically 
the story with Post here. And then, of course, you have the two-side discrepancy. And I love this case because this guy rolls into your office, and you're like, space? Dude, I saw a lecture by Dr. Gallagher. I know I can close that amount of space. You have space on the top, space on the bottom. I can close this space, no problem. But this is actually a very hard Invisalign case because if you look at the teeth, you can actually see that they're not quite contoured correct. They look kind of boxy. And the reason to a certain degree, now he does have a little bit of a crossbite on the left side, and that can be corrected with Invisalign. And maybe we can close this space here and maybe close that space a little bit. But at the end of the day, when you see a person that has rectangular teeth like this with the lack of any contour, you know, we could pretty much say the reason why you have some of the diastomas that you have is because of a tooth size discrepancy. You do not have maxillary anterior teeth that are the correct size. And obviously you could take out your measuring and start you know, calculating your golden proportion. But I don't go too crazy on the golden proportion. Most of the time when I'm diagnosing a two-size discrepancy, it's mostly very fairly easy to notice. And peg laterals obviously are the first up to dig. But this would be an example of the second one where you're just kind of looking at it, you're like, teeth are not supposed to look so rectangular. And if we would put laminates on these teeth that had sort of those normal kind of contours on the mesial and distal, then most likely this patient would not really have a diastema or true diastema. Maybe we'd close a little bit of space with Invisalign, but trying to close all this space with Invisalign would be an indication that we kind of restricted things a little bit too much. And if you restrict things in the arch a little bit too much, then usually that has a tendency to relapse quite a bit. So when you see these rectangular teeth like this or the peg laterals, my mind always kind of goes to combination orthodontics and restorative. And that should be fairly obvious. So first thing right out of the bat that we're going to do is we're going to diagnose what type of space you have. Is it a class two space, in which case we're all in? Class three, we're probably not going to be using Invisalign to close those space unless we have some major other treatment plan. We have a posterior bite collapse, which we're going to have to want to try and think about the vertical dimension at the end of this case, or we know that we're going to need to equilibrate at the end. And then we have the tongue thrusters. Those are our main focus of people that we're looking to help in this world. No reason why a tongue thruster should have to suffer their whole life with giant space between their teeth. And then obviously, and the last one, we have the, you know, the kind of the restorative plus orthodontic angle. All right. Now, let's segue into how to close the space with Invisalign. So I like to talk about how the how of Invisalign. And going forward, I think in some of my courses going forward in the next couple of years, I'm going to really focus on how Invisalign works in terms of you don't have to be an orthodontist to use Invisalign, but it is helpful to know how the actual mechanics work. So with Invisalign movements, some of the ways that we can close space, or the number one way that we like to close space, is usually something called lingual constriction. I'm going to show you a slide of what that looks like. Basically, it means everything's just tightening it. You have a, kind of a wide, open circle, and you're kind of pulling things in to close all the space. Obviously, a lot of these tongue thrust cases, or even other cases, sometimes those anterior maxillary teeth have a little bit of angulation to them, where they're kind of flaring forward. And a simple retrocline of those teeth, that's the word you use with your technician, retrocline, of those teeth, kind of angulating them, angulating them backwards with the incisal edge towards the tongue, that will actually close a lot of space as well. Sometimes we want to use what we call a mesial translation. We're going to move all the teeth to the middle, and that will take care of the space. And then sometimes we're going to do a combination of some Invisalign and restorative. So let's kind of focus on these movements. The number one way to close 
space with Invisalign is a concept called lingual constriction. And basically what that means is that the Invisalign tray goes over and it just kind of tightens and tightens and tightens and the overall circumference is decreasing, decreasing, and decreasing so that all the space goes. And basically all these teeth are being translated to the lingual. Of all the movements out there in the Invisalign world, this is probably, you know, the most accurate and the one people have the least amount of problems with. You know, this is really bread and butter Invisalign. Very rare to have a person who set up a diastomic case with lingual constriction and they're spacing in the lower jaw and they have a problem. And if visually, it would look something like this. Uh, basically, everyone hopefully can see my screen. You kind of see there's a lot of flare here. I think this person is a tongue thruster. You can see six, seven, eight, nine, ten are all the way out there. And basically, we're just going to kind of tuck those teeth in. And Invisalign gripping the buckle and lingual of the teeth is really, really accurate at doing this movement. Uh, a little bit of angulation there, but there definitely is some translation of these teeth looking backwards. And if the patient, I would say, hey, if you wear this thing, this is going to happen. Your teeth are going to be perfectly straight afterwards, and, and that's usually very common. Very few people, uh, you know, ever have problems. I very rarely see anything on the AACO blog about somebody having a problem with a spacing case when they're doing a lingual constriction. This is very, very accurate. Um, this is, of course, as opposed to, this is a large diastem. This would be like an eight or nine millimeter diastem. Again, you're looking at this, you're thinking there's two ways we could close this space. We could do something called mesial translation, meaning moving these eight and nine to the middle. But you gotta think that if you do a mesial translation of these teeth, and we'll talk about cases where we do that, but in a regular case, if you're doing mesial translation, you gotta be worried about two things. Number one, you gotta be careful that you don't angulate the teeth to the midline. Remember, you're grabbing the crown of the tooth, and sometimes you can, by accident, tip the tooth to the midline when you're trying to mesialize, which will make the space close, but you kind of have to get a funny-looking um, area in the front. But with lingual constriction, when you're kind of pulling things backwards, that doesn't happen. It just kind of translates to the lingual, and that usually does not have a problem of angulating or what we call tipping. The other problem with mesial translation in a regular Invisalign case is that if you're kind of sliding the teeth to the middle, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be opening that similar amount of space distal to that tooth. So great, you close the space between eight and nine, but now you have a space between seven and eight or nine and ten or sometimes your technician will slide those guys over and now you have a space between the canine and the lateral and that really doesn't give the patient a lot of comfort when they come in and they want that space closed for the most part they don't really want to hear hey i'm going to tuck that space somewhere else and i know it's popular either among some dentists or technicians to uh to tuck the space distal to the canines and, and theoretically it sounds like good idea. hey nobody will see it this and that but if you've ever had a patient who had space distal to the canines it is usually a huge food trap. And basically, if it's, you know, you try and keep it as small as you can so it's not visible when they smile, but if you keep it small, it's just like a pin-sized thing. It's like a perfect trap. And every time this person eats food, they get that space filled up with all kinds of food stuff. And that's rather unpleasant. So our major way to close space with Invisalign, the most successful way is really something called lingual constriction. And here you can kind of foresee even though this is eight, nine millimeters, that easily closes with Invisalign without refinements, without mid-course corrections and everything. And this is a nice, happy camper. And basically, we're just using that concept of lingual constriction. So the whole circumference of the arch, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, in this case, is kind of just tying in like a drawstring. And that works. The circumference is much smaller rather than just sliding everybody to the mesial and tucking the space there. So 
Let's take a look at three types of examples of lingual constriction and space closing. So this is Usubio. Usubio comes in and says, it feels like my smile is photoshopped. And basically, it's because it looks like there's just a space down the middle of 8 and 9 and 24, 25, that's almost prototypical. It looks like someone cut and pasted his face onto the other side. So he doesn't like the way that space looks. And this is a, you know, fairly common, this is a class one case where the molar relations are class one. And anytime I see spacing in the upper and lower arch, that is go time. So we know that this will work really, really well with Invisalign. And what we'll do basically is set up our ClinCheck to utilize lingual, <clears throat> excuse me, to utilize lingual constriction. And here's what it would look like. This is a ClinCheck. It's about 13 aligners. Um, let's note a couple of different things. I'm, I'm a big fan of the horizontal beveled attachments, and I'll roll them onto all premolars. And that's a pretty steady thing for me in all cases. I know everyone has their different ways that they like to do it. I have a lot of success with horizontal beveled on all premolar attachments. And I'm not even moving the premolars in this case, but I like that anchorage that it provides. So basically, if you're looking at the maxillary arch here, we're going to watch these two teeth, and we are going to constrict them to the linguals. So let's watch that for a second, and we're just kind of pulling everybody in, and that space closes fairly nicely, and that is good. Before, after, everyone just kind of tucks in. Same thing on the lower arch. Kind of have a little bit of space coming through right there, and we're just going to kind of lingually constrict. Everyone's kind of moving to the lingual. They're translating and tipping to the lingual, and that works really well, and this should make for a very nice before and after. Spacing in the upper and lower arches that are equivalent is usually a really easy, straightforward case. Now, one detail that I'm just going to show you here, and maybe we'll come back to later, is so this is a 13-aligner case, which is, which is fairly good, okay? But at the end of all my spacing cases, I like to ask Invisalign for something called a virtual seat chain. And basically what that means is that at the end of all the space closing, which is indicated by the blue lines here on the bottom. They throw three more aligners in, indicated by like this orange-brown color. And basically those three aligners at the end kind of really tuck everybody in. So here we are, we're at 13, every old space is closed, and now we're gonna use 14, 15, 16, and that kind of artificially just squeezes everybody in. And I like that at the end of spacing cases, because you don't want to end with the diastema just kind of kind of closed. You want that diastema lockdown closed, where if you floss between it, it has like a really tight little snap of the floss all the way through. So on all of my spacing cases, I'll ask for a virtual suit chain. Now, sometimes you, wind, you won't wind up using 13, 14, uh, in this case, 14, 15, and 16. If the Invisalign doesn't fit on, it means all the space that can be closed has been closed, and you just end the case right there. But sometimes if you can get a little more tightness out of the case, that's usually a good thing. So that is Usubio. So everyone saw spacing on the upper space and lower 13 aligners. Let's take a look at before and after. This is before and this is after. And this is easy, easy Invisalign, folks. I mean, I can't imagine how much stress and trouble I would have had trying to bond something onto the side of eight and then bond something onto the side of nine and then try and color match it. And then the guy drinks coffee and now it's stained two years later and I got to fix that. And then he had a got you know, playing softball and got hit in the face with a softball and it broke off and on Saturday night and now I got to run into the office and fix it. With Invisalign, this is all natural. And this is so easy, it's not even, it's not even funny. I would do this case for a home-cooked meal. Okay, I don't even think this guy was a patient. I think he was like a UPS employee that just happened to walk in and boom, we put him into Invisalign. You show me spacing like this on the upper lower, we will do this case no matter what. This is, this is home run stuff. All right, now, before, after, all good, no refinements, no mid-course corrections, this stuff is awesome. Now, here we are before, after, from the side view, before, 
after class one tucked in, everything looked good. I think we used about two of the overcorrects in this case. So we used two of those final, and this should hold really, really well. Now, let's move, use the same concept, and let's move to a little bit of a more complicated case. So this is Nikisha. She comes in, and she says, I got bad teeth and can't chew nothing. And she has a huge space between the upper teeth and a huge space between the lower teeth. And she is very unhappy with her teeth. And she has probably some sort of tongue thrust that's kind of opening that thing and actually giving her a little bit of anterior open bite as well. Good tongue thrusters can actually give themselves an anterior open bite uh, in that case. So even though this looks extremely challenging and a little overwhelming to a general dentist, if we use the same concept of lingual constriction, you realize that this case is actually very treatable with Invisalign as well. Again, you're noticing that there's an even amount of spacing in the upper and lower arch with a flare to them in a class one situation. So when we see that, we're like, let's get on this and go. Class one flare, even amounts of spacing upper and lower, even though this is an intense amount of space in the upper and lower, this is quite doable with Invisalign. So we put her into treatment, about 18 months worth of treatment. Let's take a look at her ClinCheck. This case was done with no refinements, no mid-course corrections, and here we are. So, you know, to the uninitiated, you get a ClinCheck look back like this. You're like, whoa, you know, th this looks very intense. But if you're using the same concept of lingual constriction, again, you're identifying that the upper jaw has flair to it with spacing. We can utilize that to close all the space. So this is us before. And just use that space with lingual constrict everyone in into case. Again, she'll have to wear a retainer for sure at the end, but this should be a nice case, and we should be able to close the envelope there completely. Now, one piece of good news, let's take a look at the bottom arch. Now, I've got to be honest, when I started this case, I was a little bit nervous. You know, at the time that we did this case, this was one of the largest spacing cases ever attempted by Invisalign, you know, back in 2004, 2005, whatever it was. Uh, and you kind of see all those anterior teeth thing, but she's class one, so this is a tongue thruster. And we're just kind of bringing them in, bringing them in, bringing them in. When you're looking at the ClinCheck, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of movement, you know, going back. And, and, and what's going to happen? I mean, when you look at it empirically at the, from before to after, you're like, you know, Invisalign's real clever. They move the gums with you. So, you know, whenever you look at the ClinCheck, you're always seeing the teeth right in the middle of the gums. You're like, yeah, that looks great. But, you know, part of my brain was thinking, you know, if this tooth is here now and at the end of the treatment I'm going to move it right here, is it going to be like in the tongue? Uh, you know, aren't I going to blow through the lingual plate of bone and go right into the tongue? And I can tell you with 100% certainty that we own an iCAT in our office, one of those CAT scan machines, for uh, the oral surgeon to look at implants and see where the mandibular is. And I use that sometimes on cases like this to see where the tooth is at the end of treatment. And sure enough, I have lingually constricted mandibular arches this amount or even more. And lo and behold, at the end of the case, when I take a iCAT, we could always see that the lower anterior teeth, no matter how much I restrict them and lingually move, translate them, they always seem to be right in the middle of the ridge, meaning that as we're pushing back, there's osteoclastic and osteoblastic action that is just remodeling the ridge backwards. So, you know, in Invisalign, we're always looking at what is actually happening in the ridge. Is the tooth tipping? Is the tooth translating? So I could say, I don't know about all the movements, but I could say for sure with lower anterior constriction that I've moved back six, seven millimeters, and it seems to be that I'm always in the middle of the ridge with the tooth upright at the end, um, and we are not breaking through the lingual plate of bone, meaning that the jaw 
mandibular anterior jaw seems to be remodeling as the teeth are tipping backwards and translating backwards. So that's good. So again, Nikisha's case looks very crazy, but when you put it together with lingual constriction in a class one situation with even amounts of space in the upper and lower, this is easily done by even the novice general dentist doing Invisalign. Okay? This is usually no refinement, no mid-course correction. Again, you can see how much the anterior area pulled in, but even with that amount of constriction, it was not a big deal, and we were still in the middle of the ridge all the way through. So that is Nikisha's case. And obviously, as a lifestyle, this really changes the way a person can function. So here she is before, and here she is after, and she really loves her smile. She might have a little bit of a gummy smile now, but, you know, that's obviously because of all the retraction and the, and the remodeling of her upper lip. You know, her upper lip is used to being so high uh, because she used to have it there. And it will take a couple of months or so to kind of reposition, but I do think her lip will start to reposition further down as we go. But even if it did stay where it is, it's still a fantastic treatment. And obviously, you could see it really changed her life, and she's a sweet gal, and everything went really, really well. All right, now let's take a look at one more case. So now everyone's kind of got a, you know, you kind of got the David Galler goggles looking at this case. Now let's take a look at Lisa. So Lisa rolls in, and she says, I hate the space between my front teeth. And you can see there's a little diastema between 8 and 9. So you're like, hey, I just heard a lecture about diastema. This is a 2-millimeter diastema here. Rather than build composite onto 8 and 9, I am going to close this with Invisalign. And you're like, hey, it looks like it's so easy. I saw 10 times that amount being done. The front of them is nowhere to be spoken of, way up there. This looks like a real easy case. However, upon further review, Lisa is not only not an easy case, this is one of the most difficult cases in the whole Invisalign world. Why is Lisa an extremely difficult diastema? It has nothing to do with the amount of space there. It has to do with the lower arch. You see, when we have even amounts of space in the upper and lower, then we can lingually constrict everyone and close the space. But when we have spacing in the upper arch and in the lower arch, we not only don't have any spacing, but we're actually crowded, and our tendency with crowding to solve that with Invisalign is usually expansion and proclination. We wind up with arches going the opposite way. I want to pull the upper arch in. I want to constrict the upper arch, but the lower arch I want to blow forward, and we're going in opposite directions. So Lisa, on a scale of 1 to 10, is a 10 in terms of difficulty. And obviously right now, now that your eyes are focused on it, you can see that there's a diastema between the top teeth and the bottom teeth are crowded. So this is actually a very extremely complicated case. Again, this is a class 1 molar relationship. In a class 2 molar relationship, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because we'd have the overjet and we can use that. But in a class 1 molar relationship where there is no overjet, uh, there's lower crowding and upper spacing, this is an extremely difficult case. So here is the key to success. I thought this image was pretty funny. Get it? Key, success. That's me on top with my, with my ponytail, and everyone on the call is listening there patiently. The easiest Invisalign case is one with even amounts of spacing in both arches. That usually lingually constricts and closes really, really well. By contrast, the hardest Invisalign case is combination crowding and spacing with no significant overjet. So when people come in for diastemas, the last thing that I, I don't just go and measure how much diastema they have, 2 millimeters, 4 millimeters, 6 millimeters, the first thing that my eyes go to is the lower arch. That's what I'm looking at. I want to see what the lower arch looks like. Is there spacing there? Is there crowding? And if there's crowding, do I have any overjet to play with? Because if I have no overjet, spacing in the upper, crowding in the lower, this is going to be an extremely difficult case. So we do treat Lisa, but we have to kind of review how we're going to treat her. So everyone sees class one molar relationship, spacing on the top, crowding on the bottom. 
How are we going to treat them? So what we need to do is we need to compensate for the differential. We need to kind of create enough space on the bottom so that we can both, A, correct the crowding, and, B, close the space. So in a class one molar relationship, there's two ways to do that. We can either extract a mandibular tooth. You take out one tooth on the bottom, and voila, now you have equal amounts of space on the top and the bottom, and then you can lingually constrict both arches and close everything up. The other way you could do it is by doing quite a bit of IPR on the lower. So in Lisa's case, let's take a look at what the possibilities could be. So here is the circumference of her lower arch. We, it starts out kind of right like that all the way through, and that upper teeth, you can imagine, are right in front of that. There's about a half a millimeter overjet. And we can, in this case, extract number 25, the one that's really twisted right over here. And if we do that, then we'll have kind of almost equal amounts of spacing in the upper and lower, probably a little bit more in the lower. And then we can retract that and close the space, and that will work well. And at the end of the day, there will be no space in the upper and no space in the lower. That is one way to go. That would be Extraction. Which tooth to pull out? I usually pull out the funkiest one. So 25 looks like it has a real serious tilt there. I'd probably pull that one out and slide everybody over and lingually constrict them back. However, when I can avoid doing anterior extractions, I like to because even if you did every single thing right, Sometimes in an anterior extraction case, you wind up with this cosmetic risk of a black triangle. See, here I closed all the space, but number 20, uh, let's see, 23 and 25 here kind of come together in kind of a funny position uh, and a funny way. I'm sorry, the 24 and 26 there. And this is kind of a, a downer at the end of treatment. I mean, everything else worked well. The space did close. Everything did. But when you try and match, you know, a lateral with the opposing central, then you kind of wind up getting with this cosmetic little black triangle, then you got to figure out how we're going to close that, whether we're going to use uh, some Botox in there or whether we're going to kind of bond to the teeth or kind of do some kind of restorative. But it's not the greatest way to end a cosmetic case at the end. Sometimes we have to. There's no choice. But when possible, I'd like to avoid it. So in Lisa's case, I usually will set up these cases both ways. I'll set it up with max IPR or as much as IPR as I can on the bottom, and I'll also set it up with extraction, and then I'll compare and contrast. So in this case, once we got into it, we found that if we dropped 0.3 millimeters of IPR, distal canine to distal canine, which is not a big deal. Again, shout out to all my friends with the Gower Spacing Technique who use my space technique, this is real easy. Obviously, I would not recommend you do this with a high speed or low speed, but you should be using the Gower Spacing Technique uh, instruments, uh, which are made by Rain Tree Densply, or at least a finishing strip. It would be very, very poor selection to take a high speed or low speed into these teeth. But if you can kind of just strip these teeth very, very gently, 0.3 millimeters is not a lot. You're talking about 0.15 millimeters from the side of the tooth. 0.15 millimeters will not even be visible nor seen. I mean, you're talking a tenth. Think about how small a millimeter is. A millimeter is a tiny amount. You're talking about one-tenth of that. That doesn't even exist. So I have no problem just doing a little bit of IPR on those bottom teeth to kind of retract them. And you can kind of see we're going to Spin and close. So we're correcting the crowding, but at the same time that we're correcting the crowding, for those with good eyes, you can kind of see that I'm kind of tucking everybody in there as well. Same thing on the upper arch. We're going to just take those diastema and we're going to lingually constrict them in and close the space. That's our movement. We like that lingual constriction works real well. Now, one other little note that we'll talk about here is if you can notice my number 11 and number 6 to a certain degree are slightly rotated. If I can unrotate those teeth, if I could take number 11 and just kind of rotate it a little bit, it will take up more 
room. If it takes up more room, this spacing case will be easier to close, okay? The more room the teeth take up, the less space or the less lingual constriction I need on 8, 9, and 10. Conversely, you will notice that I did not take any time to rotate number 12. If I rotated number 12, I believe it would take up less room. Yes, number 12 is rotated. And I know everyone and their brother is trained. Every time you see a rotated premolar, no matter what type of case it is, you unrotate it. Technicians, doctors, everyone. But in this case, if you could just use a little bit of assessment and realize that, hey, if I unrotate this tooth, it will, in fact, take up, um, take up less room. That will cause me more space in the maxillary anterior. And here I am struggling to close just the amount of space that you gave me. That would be a treatment that I wouldn't do. So I would actually tell my technician in this case, I get it, that number 12 is rotated. But in this one case, let's not unrotate it because if I unrotate it, it's going to take up less room, and then I'm going to have to close more space, and I don't want to do that, okay? And that works really, really well. So that is Lisa's case. Let's take a look at how it went. So before and after, can this case have been done with an extraction? Absolutely, but with an extraction, I would have possibly had a little bit of a black triangle right there, and with the IPR option in this case, this worked really, really well. All the gingiva is there. The teeth are closed. Space is nice. Everything's looking good. Here's our before on the top. And after, I guess I did use a lingual bar in this case, and we'll go over that in a second. But you can see I left number 12 rotated because it takes up more room when it's rotated, and it's not part of the cosmetic treatment. Lowers before and after, just a little bit of 0.3 millimeters, distal canine, distal canine is all you needed to correct that. And then here's the before and after. So this is the key. So when you have an upper spacing, lower crowding case, your report card, so to speak, is you look at yourself before and you kind of judge how you, so this is our before. If in the after photo we have a posterior open bite, then this did not go well. The key is to have done enough lingual constriction on the lower to pull everyone in so that you don't wind up with a posterior open bite. So that's are before and here's our after. And you can see in the after, successfully, thankfully in this case, we have a nice, tight, closed posterior occlusion, so we can successfully say very easily that this case was a success and we did not wind up with an anterior interference. If you see a posterior open bite here at the end, you gotta go back a little bit and try and fix it, but it basically means you kinda cause an interference by pulling those upper teeth in and not creating enough space for yourself on the bottom. So Lisa before and Lisa after, really nice smile, quite happy with ourselves at the office. Very uninvasive. We didn't really do much except for give her plastic and have her wear it, and yet it looks like she has laminate straight across. Not sure why she doesn't smile with her eyes open, but either way, we'll take it. Now, one, two more types of movement that we could do. Sometimes we said if the width of the tooth is inadequate to fill the arch, restoration of the diaphragm is done in addition to orthodontics. So this would be a case where a patient has peg laterals. They have a space between their anterior teeth. And in this case, I'm going to kind of close the space between the two anterior teeth, but I'm going to add a little wrinkle to it. So, again, we have spacing on the top, crowding on the bottom. I'm going to kind of intrude the teeth a little bit to close the space. I'm going to mesialize them a little bit and kind of lingually constrict them. But check it out. In this case, I'm noticing that this lateral is really, really thin. You know, and this lateral is also really, really thin. So I'm not just going to jam all the space closed. What I'll do in this case is I'll kind of intrude the teeth, close the space, but I'll move number seven a little bit to the mesial. I'll open up space or kind of translate that space to the distal of seven. And then once I move that to the distal of seven, then I'll go back in with some composite and then I'll fill that in to get the proper golden proportion of size that I want for that tooth. 
if I try to close this space with the Nizalign and close the anterior space, that would be a lot of space to close. That would be hard. Obviously, there's a lot of intrusion here. There's a little bit of an advanced case deep bite-wise. But the point that I want to make is that in a case where I'm identifying that the laterals are really, really small and there's a diastema, perhaps this would be an excellent example of a case where we would mesialize the teeth, kind of like a, uh, a drape kind of move everyone to the middle and then come back in and bond the side of that tooth. So that would work well. And let's see if we have a good picture. Okay, so here is us before and here is us after. So we've closed the diastema, a little bit of intrusion to close the diastema. But the key is that if you have a good eye, take a look at the distal of number seven. You see how I built out the bonding around that tooth? So I moved eight to the middle, moved seven to the middle, and then I added a little bit of bonding to the distal of seven, which now gives number seven the correct proportion and holds my space closed and keeps the diastema closed. So that would be an example of an ortho plus restorative finish. The other example I have, sorry, is sometimes we want to move things to the mesial. Here, in this case, you could see that we have a diastema. This is a different case, but here we have a diastema. But in this case, you can kind of notice that the central incisors are slightly overlapped over the lateral incisors. So in this case, I wouldn't want to just lingually constrict these guys in the same. I wouldn't want to move 7, 8, 9, and 10 in with the same overlap so that at the end of the case, the diastema is closed, but they're overlapped. I'll use the fact that they're overlapped to my advantage and move these two teeth to the middle. Okay? And once I move them to the middle, almost all the space is closed without doing anything else. So in this case, we wouldn't want to lingual constrict in thing. We would want to use the fact that they're overlapped to our advantage and close all the space. So that concludes the how do you close space with Invisalign. Basically, you can most of the time use lingual constriction. Every now and then we'll use a mesial translation if we want to do some restorative on the bonding of laterals or laminates afterwards, or sometimes we can use the fact that the teeth are rotated to our advantage. If we unrotate them, they will take up more room and the space will be closed. All right, now we get to the bread and butter with the 11 minutes that we have left. How do you keep the diastema closed? And I swear, sometimes I'll go to the office patient comes in, final day of her treatment, and we'll say, oh, my goodness, great, take off your Invisalign. Oh, the space is closed. I'm so happy. Everyone's so happy. I'll say, hey, just hang on here a second, and I'll go get my camera so we can take our final pictures, go to the back room, get my camera, come back to the room. like, oh, no, space open again. I was like, oh, my God, that was like five, six minutes. And yet the space, I'm like, quickly, we're going to take your after pictures with your Invisalign on. They're like, why? I'm like, oh, it's just because it fits so well. But those diastomas, I mean, you can go 15 minutes sometimes, and boom, they pop open. Now, how do you keep the diastema space closed tightly? So you start off with a nice case that has spacing in the upper and lower arch, and everything went smell and you're, uh, swell, and you're thinking, hey, this is so amazing, and this one is so easy. And then you get to the end, and the real job in diastema cases is not as much during the treatment as after the treatment. How do I keep that thing closed, particularly in an adult that's had it open? So there are a list that I've made of about seven things that we're going to do to make sure that that's – stays closed. And on some you'll use one, and some you'll use a combination. But make sure there are no anterior interferences. Number two, we want the G4 attachments. Number three, we want to use a virtual C-chain. Number four, sometimes we'll use a phrenectomy. Number five, sometimes we'll use a lingual bar. Number six, sometimes we can use elastics and buttons. And number seven, you can use, think about a tongue thrust appliance or number eight, speech therapy. Let's go through these one by one. 
So here's a case where I closed the diastema. Everybody was happy, but every time the guy took off his Invisalign and bit down, boom, diastema was open right away. And basically that's because there was an anterior interference ever so slightly at the end of the case. At the end of the case, unbeknownst to us, the teeth all look straight, but in the way that number 26 was hitting against number 8, every time the guy bit down without the Invisalign in, that crashed against that and that, boom, pushed the number eight out, and lo and behold, within minutes, the diastema was open. So the first thing that we're going to do after you close the diastema is I actually put my fingers on number eight and number nine, and I say, bite down. And if I could feel any vibration through the tooth, that would be a tooth that I would say, hey, we're going to need to do some equilibration, or we're going to need to do some retraction with IPR. I've got to go back. Maybe I'll intrude these teeth a little bit with more of a refinement. But we've got to get rid of that collision, because with that collision, no matter how good of a dentist you are, every single time this person bites down, the will their Invisalign straight through, the will their straight through for six months, you know, day and night, six months and one day, they'll take it off, they'll bite down, the diaphragm will pop right back open. Okay, so we've got to make sure that we can get rid of that. The ways that you can get rid of that are equilibration, or you can go back and do a refinement, maybe tuck those lower teeth in a little bit more, or create a little bit of overjet by intruding the teeth a little bit. Okay? second one is something called G4 attachment to that virgin root. So this is a case of mine back in 2006, and I was like, hey, this is great. You know, I had this diastema, closed it all up, and I was very happy with the way that that looked. The patient was happy. But, you know, for the longest time, I just could not keep these teeth together. No interference. Guy's wearing his retainer. But every time we'd turn around, the space would close up, would open up a little bit. And then we learned that of something called the G4 attachments that came out a couple of years ago. Basically, the teeth 8 and 9 look like that on a radiograph, and unbeknownst to me, what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of pull those teeth together. I wanted to measly translate them in this case with a little bit of lingual constriction, and that's what I was trying to do. But what was happening was I was kind of tipping the teeth to the middle, and the roots were staying where they were. And you can see kind of this bow-shaped appearance of the roots. If you have an appearance like that, the crowns will always bend back to the roots. And it doesn't matter how much they wear the retainers, they wear the retainers 24 hours straight, and the 25th hour they take it off and the space just bops open. And that's because instead of the teeth moving to the midline, I sort of tipped or bent them in. But nowadays, God bless, we have the G4 attachments. And the G4 attachments, these two little spikes that you see on front teeth, they kind of move the teeth. They translate the roots to the mesial. Now, here's where this comes up. It's late at night. You're in your home. Sunday night, you're looking through some clean checks. You get a clean check and you see these two little dots on the tooth. And you're like, oh, man, this patient's not going to want those two dots on the teeth. I know this patient. They're not going to want it. So, like, with nobody looking, your rep's not there, nobody in the office, you quickly go into the ClinCheck and you just kind of take those attachments off. And then when the Invisalign comes, they don't have the attachments and no one's the wiser. But then what you realize, and please, I know plenty of people who do that. I might have been guilty of doing that once or twice. But you have to realize, if you take off these attachments, these two little spikes, the translation attachments on 8 and 9, you are opening yourself up to the risk that instead of measly translating the root, you're going to be tipping the teeth in. These attachments prevent tipping of the teeth. Now, they're going to move to the midline with crown and root together. But if you slide them off, now all of a sudden you're only holding onto the crown without those optimized forces on the root, and you could somehow wind up tipping the crown to the midline. If you tip the crown to the midline, then the crown is always going to try and reposition itself back to the root, i.e. you're always going to have trouble holding that 8 and 9 closed. 
Every day they go to work, the 8 and 9 are going to slightly open up a little bit, and they come back and put on their retainer, it'll squeeze them back to the middle, and you'll go back and forth like that. And so the point being that if you see these attachments on the teeth, you want to keep those on, and that will prevent us nowadays, you know, from uh, letting those teeth. Back in the day, you know, before that G4 came out, it was always a challenge, but now with G4, this should be automatic and should not be a problem. And these things are automatically placed by the system uh, on the ClinCheck when it detects that there's movement of the root on those teeth. The point being, I would not tell your technician or manually take those attachments off. The next is the virtual seat change, so we showed you what that looked like. So basically at the end of all my – I don't understand why people put them at the end of crowding cases unless you're just not good at IPR. But I put them on the end of all my spacing cases where I have too much space and I'm fighting to close the space. It's nice to have those three little tuck-in cases at the end. And you could call them virtual seat change, something you can ask your technician for, and they basically put those three extra little um, – aligners on at the end, and that kind of just sucks everyone together and closes all the space. They're indicated with a plus on the tray, so you'll see like, hey, 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 10, and then tray 11, 12, 13, that are your CHC chain in the particular case, will have 11 plus, 12 plus, 13 plus. And it basically just squeezes all the anterior teeth together, and it closes the wall remaining space, and I think that that is a valuable tool to use. Then we get to phrenectomy. So back in the day, it used to be said, everyone would get a phrenectomy. You come in with diastema, first thing they would do is take out a scalpel and cut your frenum all the way through. Nowadays, the literature suggests that that's not the way that we go. And we can close a lot of diastemas without phrenectomies, and sometimes phrenectomies are not an important part of the equation at all. The way to differentiate it is that we now go to the end of the treatment. So here's a patient comes in with about a four or five millimeter diastema. We'll use Invisalign. We close the diastema all the way up. But you notice that in this case, the frenum comes all the way down to the papilla and it engages. Nowadays, when we see the frenum coming all the way down to the papilla, those are the cases that we'll do a phrenectomy on. And we kind of go and grab it and we cut it and we create a little bit of, uh, you know, space around that frenum. And, and just cut it all the way back. That day obviously looks a little nasty, but then it heals up for about a week, and you get that kind of look at the end, and that is a nice, nice way to go. So I find that the frenums that impinge on the papilla usually serve as a pulley, and that would pull the teeth apart. Every time the patient moves their upper lip, it pulls on that, and that pulls on the pillow, and that just yanks the teeth away in the PDL. So we wait till the end of the case, and we go ahead and we cut that thing to smithereens, and then we see that the overall retention of this case would be much, much better. And this is a nice way to do that. Um, so that is kind of lingual bars. This is what my few first lingual bars look like. I have no idea how to make lingual bars, and then I found the best technique. And everybody knows that I like to make jokes about this, but we'll go through one more time. Here is my lingual bar technique. I like to put lingual bars on most eight and nine diastomas just to kind of hold them closed in addition to everything else. The last half millimeter of closing a diastema is usually the hardest. So we use a little lingual bar to stabilize those teeth, get some osteoblastic action around those teeth and kind of close it. But here is my technique. Write this down at home, you folks. Number one, take impression. Number two, place impression into box. Number three, mailbox to a lab that makes lingual bars every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. And one lab that I use is called Specialty Appliance, and I really like them in Georgia. The owner's name is Arlen. And basically, brilliant, I send them an impression. They send me back a template with a lingual bar completely bent into it with these little composite pads. And all I have to do is put a little bit of cement on each of these little pads, throw it over, hit it with a light, and voila, boom. It looks like I went to orthodontic school. 
Okay, I have no idea how to make lingual bars. I do know how to mail things. And for 70 bucks, you can make a perfect lingual bar. Again, bending the lingual bar is a little bit of a game. If you don't have that wire totally passive, you will actually move the teeth apart. So big fan of using lingual bars on my upper 8-9 diastema cases. And with the specialty appliance, it's pretty easy. You just kind of send them the bar, set the impression. They sent me back a wire that's pre-bent and fits perfectly. To bond it in, I usually use something called Assure and Flotane. Those are two things that are made by a company called Reliance Orthodontics, R-E-L-I-A-N-C-E. I use somebody named Scott Hudson, and Assure is like some bonding agent, and the Flotane is a little bit of flowable cement that we use. All right, that's five. Six, so you don't have to know how to do this, but if you ever felt like you just needed a little bit more pull, more than the Invisalign can give you, at the end of a diastema case, I kind of put these two little buttons on eight and nine and I hook one of these little C chain well here it's a real chain a C chain between these two teeth and you kind of have the patient walk around like that for about two to three weeks and that will kind of just suck these two teeth together and give you a really nice finish this is probably most applicable in a case where you would have the you kind of did tip the central incisors in and they're kind of meeting right over here and then you see a little bit of space between eight and nine at the top kind of a black triangle you could put two just use the Invisalign elastic and button kit you kind of put these two little buttons onto the facial surfaces of the central incisors, and then you hook a little C-chain that you can get from any orthodontic uh, magazine, or I think Shine, you can even get them, and you kind of hook that through. I think I use a medium size, uh, and then you put it through. You can see this is already at the end of the three weeks, and the space is closed really nice. How do I know at the end of the three weeks? So it's smart because kind of this chain is really yellow. It starts off white, but then we chain. This is an elastic that does not come on and off. This stays on the whole three weeks. But when the patient comes back, you see how that space closed really, really nicely. Again, we didn't go from here to here with elastics. We used Invisalign to get most of the way there, and then I used this just the last little bit just to tighten that spot out so that as we head to retainers, we have a really, really tight contact, all right? Last two we're going to talk about are mostly theoretical. This is something that's called a tongue thrust appliance. And basically, if you feel like you have a patient has a tongue thrust, you would put this heinous-looking device in their mouth, and every time their tongue would come forward, the appliance would kind of jab them in their tongue, and like Pavlosian's dogs, they would learn not to move their tongue. This does work very well on young adolescents and possibly teenagers. I do not have much success with this in adults. Number one, most adults just won't go for this. And, and number two, it's kind of hard as an adult to retrain yourself to go. This is kind of a hardcore. I think this works in theory or makes sense in theory, but in practicality in adults, this does not work. And even some children don't love this appliance. It's kind of hardcore. And as I was kind of downloading some pictures of what this thing looked like, um, you know, sometimes in orthodontics we have appliances that uh, mean well, and, and, and theoretically would work nicely, but just aren't so practical. We don't really give much thought to the emotional trauma we will inflict on a person from having to walk around with something like this. And then I found this picture uh, of this device. So I have a couple of kids. I don't care how bad their teeth were. I would never make my daughter walk around with something that looks like this. I have no idea what this appliance does, but whatever it is, it can't be a good thing. I would rather pull all her teeth out and put in implants than, than make my daughter go to sleepaway camp with this thing. This is a pretty little girl, and she has to wear this heinous device, but not related to our lecture, but I thought that was funny. Last thing is speech therapy. Speech therapy to solve a tongue thrust comes from a guy named Dr. Mervyn Falk. 
who developed the method in 1976 and can, with neuromuscular facilitation, kind of teach a person not to allow their tongue to thrust forward. Uh, this has fairly good success with teenagers and young adolescents and, and, and kids, and if you could identify it in our pediatric population, we'll be saving them a lot of headache as they get older. In adults, it kind of has mixed reaction, kind of hard for an adult to reteach himself. I do give this option to adult patients in our practice, and some have taken part in it, but it has limited success. It is hard for adults to relearn how to swallow and this and that. But there is a way with speech therapy. If we can adult identify it in a pediatric population that we have, you'd be doing a real nice service for them. All right, so when we put it all together, that is the story with the big diastomas. That is everything you need to know, but we're too afraid to ask about diastomas. How do you diagnose it? We've got the class two malocclusions, those are a go. The class three malocclusions, those are definitely a no-go. Tongue thrusters, we've got to help them. We're the last help. Nobody else in the world will help them. If we don't, just they know they're going to wear retainers every single night for the rest of their life, just like everybody. Two-size discrepancy, we're going to use a little bit of our restorative knowledge to help us out, mostly on those peg laterals or the really rectangular shape. Posterior occlusal wear, now you have the eyes to kind of identify. When you see that, you'll know, hey, the reason why you have the diastema developing later on in life is because you have a loss of vertical dimension. How do we keep the how do we close the space? Well, lingual constrictions are number one way to go. That's the most predictable and the easiest one. And when we have upper and lower spacing that is even, that is a good go. If we're flared out, we're going to retrocline those guys back. And if we're overlapped, sometimes we can easily translate those, oops, says medial, but that means mesial, translate those guys to the midline. But just remember, if you mesially translate the teeth, you want to make sure you have the G4 attachments. And then, of course, how do you keep the space closed? You want to make sure there's no interferences, G4 attachments, virtual seat chain, phrenectomy, lingual bar, elastics, maybe a thrust appliance, and a speech therapy. All right, that takes us to the end of the diastema. One closing note, big fan of the American Academy of Cosmetic Orthodontics during my term here. And basically the American Academy of Cosmetic Orthodontics is a group of GPs um, who are in the country who are all doing Invisalign or some sort of clear line of therapy. And it's a clearinghouse of information where we can trade information and kind of get to know what everyone else is doing. It's a real friendly group. We're up about 500 people now. And uh, the academy is represented on four different continents. Uh, you get a nice plaque. It goes in your office, and basically if you're playing in this game, I can't imagine, if you're playing in the Invisalign game and you're a dentist in the country, I can't imagine not a, a belonging to an academy that supports what you do. And, you know, we're very passionate about using Invisalign to solve orthodontics at the GP level in a restorative office, cosmetic office. Some of the nice member benefits you get is um, you get the journal. The journal is kind of the, the Bible nowadays of what is going on in the clear line of therapy world. I mean, these Ask the Expert calls are great, but they only come up once every few weeks. How do you know what's going on? You know, in the world, other times, you get case reports, you get tips and tricks. You know, there's always products that we're reviewing. Uh, you get the AACO logo. You get the blog. There's webinars on the AACO website, which is good. Uh, one, well, two very important things. The AACO has their own member benefits. They have their own consent forms. We're trying to get everyone in the country to use the same consent form for our patients. So we've had them use a patient consent form that we made for the AACO, and all AACO doctors use it. It is a member-only benefit, so you do have to be a member to get that. And then, of course, a retainer agreement form, especially in this diastema case. This is once we get these spaces closed, let's say we put on a lingual bar and we did a phrenectomy, we want the patient to understand that if that lingual bar comes off, they've got to come back to the office right away. In our tongue thrust cases, we want them to sign in blood that they understand that they have to wear their, their retainer every night. And the AACO made its own very powerful retainer agreement contract that every patient of theirs signs at the end. And that's, again, a member-only benefit. But you log in, you download, you join, 
You can use that retainer agreement. That will protect you from a lot of aggravation. And there's just going to be a certain percentage of patients that relapse, no matter how good of a dentist you are. And you want to make sure you have a straight retainer agreement afterwards that kind of protects you and your office and keeps your patient at bay. And just explains this is what we talked about that day when we ended, and there's no. So I can't imagine starting a case of Invisalign without having used the AACO consent form or the retainer agreement. So I would encourage everyone on the call to kind of join an AACO. We'd love to have you. Here's also a nice benefit. You know, there's a blog on the AACO website. It's aacortho.com. And basically, the doctor's like, hey, this is my first time coming on. I want to see if anybody has trouble, uh, suggestions for why this case is not tracking. And basically, everyone and their brother goes in and they start answering, hey, I would do this, I would do that. Maybe it's compliance, maybe it's thing. I like to call this part of the academy dental town, but with nice people. So you post any sort of question there, and you will get people in the country who are looking to help you and help you get to the most perfect results. And I frequently are on there and commenting and this and that. And, uh, you know, suggestions, that's a nice part of the AAC. Again, it's on the website and blog. Um, registration is at aacortho.com. Um, I think there's a cost of the first-year membership, and then afterwards there's a very small cost afterwards. It would be nice for everyone on the call to uh, join in. Strength in numbers, big proponent of it. Love playing in the Invisalign game, and I want you guys to join in too. I wanted to thank Dr. Gallagher again for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us. And we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.